these trees are grand. Ah, that cumulus cloud looks like a smile face. Hmm, I've never gotten berries this sweet from a supermarket, nor even a farmer's market. I went fishing and I caught 90 fish. Now I know where the term pine scent comes from. How come the father animal is devouring his own babies? Moss even smells soft. I think swamps are underrated. I wish I lived in a nest. So many stars. Welcome now to Out of All Doors. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Out of All Doors. I'm your host, Adam Drent. Out of All Doors is a semi-regular show about one thing, the outdoors. Maybe you have your doubts concerning the fertility of such a narrow topic. You're wondering how anyone could possibly wring more than 40 or 50 minutes of content out of the subject, much less hundreds of episodes. But I invite you to stop for a minute and consider this. The outdoors is a huge place, full of trees, animals, rocks, and most of the best people. There are thousands of different kinds of insects, and the vast majority of them are outdoors. We could spend untold hours discussing each kind of insect in great detail and still reasonably consider ourselves an outdoor podcast. Though, of course, we would never do that to you because we also want to talk about the good side of bad weather, for example. And we want to make a list of the world's oceans ranked from least water to most water. And yes, I'll be drawing on my own expertise and doing plenty of research to ensure that every show is informative and entertaining, but we'll also be drawing on the knowledge and experience of a vast network of fellow outdoor enthusiasts, out-of-all-doorsmen and out-of-all-doors women who I've met in campgrounds, in ranger stations, on trails, on mountaintops, in the outdoors section at bookstores, and in seemingly uninhabited, half-collapsed cabins deep in the woods. But mostly, these are people who used to read and comment on my now-defunct out-of-all-doors blog. Sometimes these people will call in or record segments, and sometimes I'll simply read the letters or essays or articles that they write and send to me, though I'll always be certain to give credit where credit is due. In this way, we can all benefit from the combined wisdom of a wide variety of people who are all united by their mutual love of the outdoors. So, now we know who Out of All Doors is by, but who is it for? Well, that's easy. It's for like-minded people, that is, people who love the outdoors. People who find peace and fulfillment in nature. People who water ski. People who know the difference between a horse and a donkey and a mule and a dead mule. People who know that you can tell the age of a tree by cutting it down and counting its rings, not because they read that fact in some book in the bowels of a dusty library, but because they read that same book while standing outdoors. People who have actually done a little singing in the rain instead of just sitting inside and watching the famous musical Singing in the Rain. People who smoke cigarettes outside not because the law demands it of them, but because they prefer it. People who fret about finances while lying awake in hammocks strung between two trees, not while lying awake in beds and bedrooms. People who know that apples are edible and a bowl of thorns and poison ivy is not. People who have gotten lost miles from civilization and been forced to resort to cannibalism. People who take tasteful pictures of waterfalls. People who don't take let's never go outside again for an answer. People who can't shut up about the freshness of fresh air. People who constantly invite you to consider how Lewis and Clark must have felt. People who take the presence of squirrels on their bird feeders as personal insults and seek to exact bloody vengeance upon the perpetrators. People who whittle on porches in the cool of the evening and sweep up their own wood shavings without having to be asked five times. People who can set up a tent without looking like inept sitcom fathers struggling to appear masculine in front of their dubious families. People who don't necessarily like mosquitoes, but they respect them. And finally, listeners, this podcast is for you. 
Whether you are these people or simply seek to become more like these people, Out of All Doors exists to celebrate and enhance your appreciation of the outdoors. Let's get started, shall we? So, listeners, as we embark, let's get one thing straight. Let's get one thing established. There's inside, and then there's outside. But which one is better? Because if we can't determine this now, then why go on? Well, to help us settle this ages-old debate, once and for all, I've compiled a handy list of side-by-side -side comparisons between the two, inside versus outside. May the best place win. Number one, outside has ancient towering pines. Inside has a wobbly stool. Number two, outside has fresh, invigorating air, oxygen-rich and smelling of morning. Inside has the constant threat of death by carbon monoxide inhalation. Number three, outside has trout cooking on a spit over a merrily crackling fire. Inside has an old pretzel under the couch, and it doesn't even have salt on it anymore, which means either someone licked it clean before he dropped it, or else vermin have been at it. Number four, outside has a moose bellowing in the mist. Inside has a housefly laying microscopic eggs on your spoons. Number five, outside has constellations of glittering stars. Inside has a dirty white ceiling, and then when you look closer, you see the unmistakable signs of severe water damage. Number six, outside has vibrant fall foliage. Inside is a calendar with one picture of vibrant fall foliage, and the calendar is from the same bank that just denied you a loan because you don't make very much money, and your credit could be charitably described as bad. Number seven, outside has no air conditioning. Inside does have air conditioning, but air conditioning isn't going to solve all your problems, buddy. Number eight, outside has sunshine. Inside has some sunshine, but only through windows, and who has time for windows? Number nine, outside has an endless variety of active, friendly people enjoying nature. Serial killer John Wayne Gacy famously preferred the indoors. Number ten, outside has mile after mile of pristine beaches. Inside has a TV showing you depressing footage of pristine beaches being ruined by near-constant oil spills. So our final tally is outside 10, inside 0. Outside is victorious. Okay, now we're going to run a little segment called Frankly Frank, where people with outdoor-related problems write into friend of the show Frank, and he answers them in the most straightforward, direct way that he knows. The first letter says, Dear Frankly Frank, every time I go out hiking, I get blisters on the back of my heels. I have almost no foot pain besides these blisters. I've tried various socks and shoes and always seem to get the blisters in the same spots. These blisters are ruining an activity I otherwise love. What can I do to prevent this from happening in the future? And that's from Burning in New Hampshire. Dear Burning, the issue here is one of potentially action. First of all, it's difficult to do with action that doesn't result in an effect. Isn't this true? This is really what I mean when I say action. Something done to or by someone. But there's another side to that so-called coin. When that action becomes an action we take issue with, then that presents what I like to call a problem. 
What this could mean is many number of things, the causes and effects of which depend greatly on many, many factors. What I recommend in the meantime is to carry out the action that does best for you. It better be fitting your approval. And in that way, you'll be good. Dear Frankly Frank, I try to take my wife out camping with me all the time. At first she enjoys it, cutting firewood, setting up the tent, and just being out in nature. But soon she grows bored and wants to head back home. I've tried to help her into the outdoors by building up to longer and longer trips, but every time we head out, she only seems to want to leave even faster. We're really at an impasse here. How can we share this experience in a way that works for both of us? Wondering in St. Paul. You're wondering. Uh, <laughs> oh, marriage. The eternal flame, always flickering, always burning, and always well shining, and shining so brightly. Watch it shine, I used to say, and still do upon occasion, when asked to do so for a fee. When I read and reread your letter, wondering, was reminded of other marriages and the similarities and differences between all of them. And there are many. It sometimes seems that we can be at odds with one another, <laughs> married couples can whereas at other times a measure of peace is found between the two parties. Fights occasionally lead to resolutions, whereas other times they can lead to escalations of conflict. There's no other way to say it. Sometimes situations improve, although they can also worsen. The situation you find yourself in is as unique to itself as it is different to every other situation other couples also experience. And therein lies the potential for changeability. Dear Frankly Frank, my brother and I just had a very successful hunt last weekend shooting four deer, three does and a buck. Now we have more venison than we know what to do with, and we're getting bored with just venison steaks. What are some other preparation methods available? Hungry in Terre Haute. Dear Hungry, uh, at first I'll admit I was thrown, you see, by the word deer. I thought you'd already address me, dear Frankly Frank, but then here you were saying deer again. Then I realized it was a different deer. Possibly very different indeed. <laughs> Language. What a strange, unruly beast. Always meaning one thing and then something else entirely. As of two things at odds with one another, or alternately, one thing against its opposite in a dance of difference, possibly. Hunting, meanwhile, presents itself as an idea, the likes of which is understandable only when considering the idea as a thing itself. I always think, <laughs> what other way can it be understood? At this point, you've hunted, and you know the joy of the kill. But that joy can be fleeting. This can all feelings and their ways as they go, and so on. Sometimes something happens. <laughs> What's known for sure is that whatever's eaten, when eaten, is eaten. So, eat away, I say, and don't get caught up in all this deer, deer business. Honest opinions, real answers, and straight talk. That's frankly frank. If you have a question for Frankly Frank, just send that question to outofalldoors, all one word, at gmail.com with Frankly Frank written in the subject line, and we'll pass those along to Frank, and who knows, maybe you'll hear him respond to your question on the show. It seems like every time you decide to hike to the top of a mountain, no matter where you are, you inevitably run into the same types of people. Here are five of the most common. 
Number one is the Miracle Man. This is that guy whose seat broke through the floor of an airliner and fell 20,000 feet down onto the mountain up which you're hiking, and now he's sitting by the trail, still belted into his seat, looking disheveled and amazed as he feels every bone in his body searching for breaks and finding none. Don't ask him how far you are from the top. He has no idea. Number two is the penitent sinner. This is that guy crawling up to the top of the mountain on his hands and knees in a loincloth and stopping every hundred yards to whip his own bare and bleeding back with a cruel-looking cat of nine tails, shrieking with pain and remorse. Do not get stuck behind him. Number three is the German. This guy speaks perfect English without the slightest hint of an accent, but don't be fooled. He's a German. Number four is the Sly Jester. This is the guy who asks you to take a picture of him and his family, but when you press the button on the camera he handed to you, a tiny jet of water sprays backward out of the camera and wets your face while he and his family howl with laughter. And number five, of course, is the sectional sofa salesman. It's true that this guy always has some great deals on sectional sofas, but think about it. How are you going to get your new sectional sofa back down the mountain? An acquaintance and contributor named Lionel Tides lives in Oklahoma. He is actually a direct descendant of a farmer who settled in Oklahoma right before the height of the Dust Bowl, which was, of course, the period of extreme drought that plagued the Great Plains during the 30s. This farmer was named Albert Tides, and he was Lionel's great-grandfather. And Albert, fortunately for us, kept a diary of his experiences as a farmer during the Dust Bowl. Lionel has been gracious enough to transcribe the diary and send it to us here at Out of All Doors so that we can share it with you. Now, none of the entries are dated, and there does seem to be a fair amount of time that passes between each entry, but I think that's understandable given the circumstances at the time Albert was writing them. That said, I'm sure you'll find Albert's diary fascinating, informative, heartbreaking, and ultimately inspiring. Entry 1. Well, we got to our new property today. Flat and barren, but ours, by golly. One of the children, I think it was a boy, said, Daddy, where's all the trees? Before I could answer, another child said, Daddy, where's the house? Hold on, I said. Let me address the question about trees first. A third child, heedless of my warning, said, Daddy, did Mommy really die of tuberculosis, or did you just tell us that because the truth was even worse? No, I shouted. How could the truth be worse than that? Then all the children started shouting out nightmare scenarios that could be worse than having one's mother die of tuberculosis, and I was eventually forced to spank them all. Some of them may have been spanked twice. It's easy to lose track. I don't miss being a child. Entry 2. Well, we built our house out of dirt. It's a one-room sod house. Sod, I've learned, is dirt. Everything me and the children's mother, God rest her soul, ever taught them about the importance of wiping one's feet before entering a house has flown out the window. Speaking of which, our windows are just holes in the dirt walls. I asked some guys in town if sod houses are even supposed to have windows, but I couldn't get a straight answer. Our chimney is a hole in the dirt roof, but most of the smoke from the fire stays in the house. The dirt house, filled with smoke. Last night a neighbor, Mr. Axifer, came over on his horse to say hello and to ask how come our house is made out of dirt when there's plenty of cheap lumber readily available in town. He didn't stay long, and I think it was because of all the dirt, smoke, and relentlessly inquisitive children. Entry 3. We finished our house, our real house. It's made out of boards. Wooden boards. I've been tilling the fields. Soon we'll begin planting. 
I'm thinking wheat. Wheat, 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 as far as the eye can see, this year and every year after, for decades to come, passed down from generation to generation, my sons and their sons and their sons and their sons, all growing wheat in these fields. There may come a day when I will be tempted to try growing something else, maybe some corn or soybeans or what have you, but I will be strong and I will plant wheat and the nourishing rains will come and the wheat will grow and me and my family will get rich from wheat, rich enough to have a house with a properly functioning chimney because this confounded wood house's chimney is blocked or something and the house is filling with smoke even as I write this. Why? 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 Entry 4. It's been a while since I've written in this thing. The fields have been tilled and planted, and now we wait. We wait for rain. One of my children told me it was raining yesterday, but when I ran outside to see, it wasn't raining. So either it stopped raining that quickly, or it was never raining at all, in which case my child has gone insane, is a malicious liar, or does not know what rain is, which hardly seems possible, because I'm almost certain I remember this particular child experiencing rain on multiple occasions prior to the move, and seeming to have a passable understanding of the concept of rain during our many recent nightly discussions of rain, and how much we want it, and how we're all doomed if we don't get some. Then last night I woke up because I thought I heard thunder, but it was just the sound of the top of our chimney collapsing inward, the rubble getting stuck halfway down and the house filling with smoke almost instantly. One of the children said she missed the dirt house. Then another child said he was scared of rain. Then a third child said we should have planted pretty flowers instead of boring wheat. Then Junie, the youngest, said, Dad, I had a dream that Mom was alive, and she was here, and she was dusting the house, dusting everything, top and bottom, but no matter how much she dusted, more dust appeared, and the dust started to pile up on the mantel, and on the coffee table, and on the entertainment center, and Mom started to cough and cough. The whole family was silent for once, which was nice, but also eerie. Then Junie said, And then a giant dust storm came and destroyed our wheat crop. I gave each child a personalized scolding and sent them all to bed. Okay, well, that's powerful stuff. Thank you to Lionel Tides again for sharing this touching and informative link to his family's past, and we'll hear more from Albert and his family next time on Diary of a Dust Bowl Farmer. Listen, listeners, we all know that the outdoors is spectacular and wondrous, but not every moment spent in the outdoors is purely spectacular or consistently wondrous. Things go wrong. That's just life. Inside of some doors or out of all doors, things go wrong. So I've written a short list of my personal outdoor pet peeves. Okay, number one, anytime I'm plummeting. Number two, when the kindling is too wet to use to make a fire, but too dry to drink as a beverage. Number three, when an elk has been grinning at you for ten minutes, but as soon as you get the camera out, he just goes back to regular old dumb elk face. Number four, when you're so overwhelmed by the beauty of the view that you forsake all of your worldly possessions. Number five, when no matter where you move, the smoke from the campfire seems to follow you, but you can't say anything about it to your friends because smoke isn't sentient, and they'll think you've gone insane, and they'll tie you to a tree and leave one guy to guard you with the hatchet while the others go looking for help. Number six, when wind goes right through your windbreak like it's not even there. Number seven, when a hunter mistakes you for a deer and forcibly interrogates you for information regarding the potential whereabouts of any and all enormous bucks in the area. Number eight, when you drink water straight from a mountain stream and it still basically just tastes like water. Number nine, when it gets dark just as the sunset was getting good. 
Number 10, when you get to the summit of a mountain only to discover that it's a false summit and the real summit is down by the parking lot and you could have conquered it with ease and been back on the road hours ago. So those are just a few of my outdoor pet peeves, and there are plenty more where that came from, trust me. Maybe I'll share some more next time, if I'm in the mood, that is. If you have outdoor pet peeves and you'd like to share them, send them to outofalldoors at gmail.com, and I'll read them quietly to myself while reclining on my bed and looking at my laptop computer monitor. We step into the mouth of the cave. We wind our way down through the dark passages, twisting and damp, into the bowels of the earth. We carry torches. We wear embarrassing helmets. We hear water rushing somewhere far ahead of us, far below us. The walls glitter in the torchlight. Then we round a narrow corner, one at a time, and step into an enormous cavern. We can't see the ceiling. We can't see the far wall. We sense thousands or millions of dark presences. We have entered the battery. To you, the flight path of the bat seems erratic, but it is the bug which the bat pursues whose flight path is erratic. It is the bug which the bat pursues who doesn't know how to fly normal. The bat is not too proud to adapt his flight path to match the bug's flight path so that he, the bat, may chase down and devour the bug. The bat sacrifices his dignity in order to feed, but in so doing, he imbues himself with a yet greater dignity. A wounded dignity is yet more deserving of our reverence, is it not? I think it is. Behind me, in a darkness so deep it's literally the color black, I hear a rustling, a feverish flapping. I see nothing, but I sense the movement, like a ripple across the surface of that aforementioned blackness. I shudder. What could it be? A horrific bird? An old, broken old kite? A wind-blown newspaper with a depressing headline? Oh no, I hope it's not a flag. At last I feel it, fluttering against my face, squeaking, buffeting my scalp with fragile, leathery wings. It's a bat. Oh, thank goodness. It's a bat. Can I keep him? asks your son. He followed me home. Somehow, before he even lifts the corner of the box lid so you can peek inside, you know it's a bat. Your son lifts the box lid and two gleaming bat eyes gaze up at you. Why did you assume it was a bat? How could you know? The word sonar reverberates through your mind, but you wisely reject it as a reasonable explanation. That's stupid, you say out loud, to yourself, but your son's face registers pain, and you realize that he thinks you've called the bat, and worse, his desire to possess the bat, stupid. But then you realize that you do consider his desire to possess the bat stupid, so you clarify, son, the bat isn't stupid, but it is foolish to think you can own a bat. Do you understand? Your son looks down at the box in his hand, peering inside through the cracked lid. I understand, he says, but you have no idea if he really does, and, knowing him, you never will know if he understands. Why did you even ask him if he understood? You knew what his answer would be, and you knew you'd doubt that answer. Listen, son, you say, the last thing this family needs is more complication. Let's set him free. You and your son go into the backyard. It is dusk. If any time of day is bat time, this is it. Take the lid off now, you say. Your son lifts the lid. Nothing flies out. You look down into the box. The box is empty and there is a hole chewed through the bottom. 
You turn and look back at your house. There's a light on in the kitchen and another in the upstairs bedroom. The house looks as it usually does, but you know that it is not as it usually is. There's a bat in it. You sincerely hope the bat heard you say the bat isn't stupid before it escaped. The man played charades with his wife and another couple. He was trying to get his wife to guess bat, but no matter how much he flapped his arms, soundlessly hissed, and pretended to suck blood from an invisible artery, his wife either could not or would not guess bat. In fact, after guessing a dozen different species of bird, she had lapsed into sullen silence, waiting for the timer to run out and the failure to be complete. She wanted her husband to fail, and she wanted it to be his fault. That's what he thought, anyway. His only hope now was that the other couple, after the timer went off, with nothing to gain or lose from the admission, would acknowledge that they had known it was a bat. Yes, they'd known the whole time. How had his wife not gotten it? Because they definitely would have gotten it, both of them. The timer ticked while the man flapped some more and tried to retract his upper lip enough to bear his quote-unquote fangs. And then there was a crash from above. Glass rained down from the ceiling onto the coffee table, injuring no one. Everyone screamed, especially the men, and they all looked up. A bat, gripping a ball-peen hammer in its toes, flew down through the shattered skylight and into the room. The man, who had stopped flapping, looked at his wife and pointed at the bat. He pointed emphatically. The timer ticked. The man's wife's eyes widened, her face ablaze with comprehension. Hammer, she shouted, and the timer dinged. We can't spend the rest of our lives here. We should go now. Not even the current inhabitants spend all of their time here, so no reasonable person would expect us to. We're humans, did I mention that? We got what we came for. So, yes, I'm ready if you are. Let's go. We turn and head back in the direction from which we came. We leave. We depart from... The Battery. And now I welcome you to the Saint's Bestiary. The Saint is a mysterious figure who I really don't know much about. In fact, the only information he wanted me to impart to you, the listeners, is that he sometimes goes out into nature with groups and sometimes goes out into nature by himself. I don't know what, if anything, we're supposed to glean from that, but I can also tell you that, although I've never met him, he's intrigued me since he first started posting about the amazing new beasts he discovered on the now-defunct Out of All Doors blog a few years ago. And now, for the Out of All Doors podcast, he's agreed to call in from wherever it is that he is from time to time to keep us abreast of his always surprising discoveries in the kingdom of beasts. So, now you have as much context as I do. Oh, and I should stress that in most, if not all, cases, the saint is the only person to have ever encountered these species, at least as far as anyone can tell. This week, the saint has called in to share several exciting new beasts with us, and he has also sent me field sketches of each beast, which I will attempt to describe for you before you hear his description of the beast itself, so you can try to picture the beast as he describes it. In the first picture the saint sent me, it looks like a frog wearing a tin can with holes cut for his back legs to stick through and his head and front legs sticking out the top. Uh, the frog is shooting out his tongue to get a fly, and it's also worth noting that we're viewing the frog from the underside, so it seems apparent that the frog has rolled onto his back somehow and maybe stuck like that. Anyway, I'll turn it over to the saint now for further explanation. Crab frog. Envy's hermit crabs. Tries to copy them with junk and tears up his legs and arms. Loves swamps in the Midwest, like most frogs. 
eats bugs, but also eats stones like goats sometimes. On the best attempts to jump, he can only stand up and muster a hop, which hurts really bad and starts him rolling down the hill these days. Birds can't pick him up anymore, and snakes bite him until they realize that he can't eat his tin can shell. And for that reason, most crab frogs try to stay away from young snakes, but can live near more experienced snakes. Once they grow big, they can't get out of their cans. They can't breathe great, and their croaks sound like funny rattles inside the can. Okay, so the second picture the saint sent me is pretty complex. There are three different beasts pictured in this one. There's one beast that looks a little like a maned squirrel with sharp teeth. It looks like it has very long legs that are gripping the trunk of a tree. There's a second beast that looks a little like a striped furry alligator with fox ears. This beast is biting the mane of the first beast and stretching it away from the tree. And it looks like the first beast is trying to bite a plant of some kind as he gets pulled out from the tree trunk. And then flying overhead is a bird with a long, elaborate tail and a curved beak. And I think it's sticking out its tongue. It's a little hard to tell. So let's listen to what the saint has to say about these three, and maybe that'll provide some clarity. Tiffbirds, stretchers, and tuggers. Stretchers and tuggers are symbiotic. Once a stretcher grabs onto a tree, he will never let go for life. Can't or won't. Don't know. Tuggers wander around until they find a nice stretcher and grab his mane to pull him towards food so that the stretcher won't get famished and cranky. Stretchers like fruits mainly, but they will nip tuggers if he gets too hungry. Tiffbirds can't resist trying to build a nice nest from a stretcher's mane. Soft, warm, and tiffbird eggs are the same color as that mane for camouflage. After stretchers are all full and happy, he will just lay there, but the tugger gets to hide behind the mane or tree and loves to eat the tip bird when it lands to try to get some mane hairs. And believe you me, when a stretcher's lucky or smart, I don't know, enough to pick a fruit tree to latch onto for life instead of pines or oaks like most of them do, he will be as happy as fat as the day is long. And let me tell you, both the Tiffbirds and Tuggers just can't keep away. Well, I don't know how much clarity that provided, but we here at Out of All Doors want to thank the Saint for sharing his incredible, almost unbelievable findings with us, and we always look forward to hearing about the new species of beast that he'll find next. I have no doubt that future episodes will contain even greater wonders and mysteries of the kingdom of beasts as the Saint continues to venture out into the wilderness, alone or as part of a group, in search of more previously unknown beasts for the Saint's bestiary. Out of All Doors' list of sponsors who sponsor the show is only one sponsor long. That sponsor? Featherwood Frames. And they don't really sponsor the show so much as they have one advertisement on the show that I do because I want to, because they make amazing glasses out of wood, and because I'm friends with Featherwood Frames' founder and true Out of All Doorsman Dave Flowers. Here are some things about Featherwood Frames Dave insisted that I mention. The glasses frames are made entirely out of local wood. 
Local, in this instance, means Southwest Ohio. Not local to me, certainly, and perhaps not local to you either. But it's local to Featherwood Frames, and that's what matters most of all. And the glasses are made using human-powered tools. This means no non-human entities are allowed to use the tools that are used to make your glasses. And actually, that's what matters most of all. And you should also know that you can visit them online at featherwoodframes.com, where you can find all this information again and more, plus see pictures of the glasses with which you will then fall in love. And they do custom designs, which means that you can ignore the suggestions of glasses-making experts and force them to bring your own dumb ideas into being. Perhaps you think this advertisement isn't for you because you have 20/20 vision, but have you ever heard of a little thing called oh I don't know sunglasses? Now I've embarrassed you, but I did so with a purpose, and that purpose is to remind you that everyone can and should wear glasses of some kind. And my further purpose is to convince you that the kind of glasses you should wear should be made out of local wood with human-powered tools by Featherwood Frames. And remember, the website is featherwoodframes.com. I'll spell it. F e a t h e r w o o d f r a m e s period c o m Featherwood Frames Light as a Featherwood. And now, be welcomed to the campfire of chills. This time, our chilling story comes from Simon. He writes, "Me and my friends Alan and Gordy were hiking in the deep woods up in Canada, and we got separated just as it was getting dark. I called out for them for a long time, but I didn't hear any response. I tried retracing my steps, hoping they'd do the same, but I just got more lost, and the woods got darker and darker." I had just decided that my only option was to lie down and wait for sunrise when I heard footsteps coming toward me through the darkness. I didn't call out. I didn't want whoever was carrying the lantern to find me. But the lantern was coming right at me, as if whoever it was knew exactly where I was standing. I tried to hide behind a tree, but when I peeked around the trunk, just a few yards away, I saw the figure standing still, facing me and holding the lantern up at shoulder height. The figure wore blue and yellow rags and had long yellow hair. I almost collapsed in terror. You will never see Alan or Gordy again," said the figure. Then it turned to walk back into the woods. Wait! I managed to call out. Who are you? I am Marvuk," said the figure without turning around. Then Marvuk walked away into the forest, and after a while, the light disappeared. But Marvuk was only half right. He was right that I never saw Alan again. But eight years later, I was at the airport in Jacksonville, and Gordy walked right past me. I turned around and chased him down and asked him to take a picture with me. He seemed really nervous and refused to pose, but I snapped a picture of him with my phone in the middle of the argument. He stormed away, but I had my picture. The first chance I got, I went back to the place we'd been hiking in Canada the night I had my encounter with Marvuk. I went out into the woods, more or less where we'd gotten separated, and I waited for nightfall. As soon as it got good and dark, I started yelling, "Marvuk! Marvuk!" Soon enough, I saw the light approaching through the woods. I was a lot more conscious of how slow Marvuk was this time. Eventually, he made his way to me. He looked basically the same as I remembered him: same blue and yellow rags, same long yellow hair. "Who are you who calls out for me in the night?" asked Marvuk. "How do you come to know my name?" "We've met before," I said. "And you seek me again?" asked Marvuk. He seemed genuinely confused. I said, "Yeah, I wanted to show you something." I got out my phone and brought up the picture of Gordy. 
You told me I'd never see my friends again, but look who I ran into in the airport in Jacksonville, of all places. Marvuk squinted at the screen of my phone, lowering the lantern down near his waist so there'd be less glare. The picture is blurry, he finally said, and it's been, what, ten years? Eight years, I said, and that is clearly Gordy. I know it. You know it. Just admit you were wrong. I'll admit a striking resemblance, said Marvuk, but that's it. Fine, I said, but you know that I know that you were wrong. That's all I wanted. I know that you believe to know that I was wrong, said Marvuk, and with that, he turned and walked off into the forest. And uh, thank you to Simon for writing that terrifying story into Campfire of Chills on Out of All Doors. And uh, if any of you have any terrifying stories for the Campfire of Chills, be sure to send them to outofalldoors at gmail.com. Gentleman's Mills is a company that has long been synonymous with fine breakfast cereals, but recently they've made a bold foray into the realm of trail mix, granola bars, and other kinds of outdoor snacks. Here are a few of their most exciting new products. Trial Mix. We take only our best hand-picked oats and mix them with crunchy murder weapons, DNA samples, bits of gavel, and incorrectly filled out subpoenas. Find that hand. It's a large bag of trail mix that features one raccoon paw hidden somewhere within. Secret Fortunes. A secret message has been shredded and cooked into a bar. Pick the shredlings from your teeth and reassemble them to decode it, you sleuth. Bark Bar. No, not for your dog, silly. It's a bar made of tree bark and nothing else. Comes in a variety of tree species and one flavor. Raisin Trouble. A trail mix composed entirely of raisins glued together with peanut butter, syrup, and literal glue. Burnt Remains. Oat and nut mix placed lovingly in our signature campfire to get that authentic smoky char taste. Surgeons General recommends against it. So if any of those sound as good to you as they all do to me, then rush right out and pick them up, and we here at Out of All Doors will keep you abreast of all new Gentleman's Mills trail foods as they roll them out. Next up is a little segment called Woodsman Wisdom from our friend Eugene in Portland, Maine. He's written in to share some of his woodsman wisdom with all of us, so I'm just going to read his letter and hopefully we'll all benefit. He writes, Hi there, Adam. This is Eugene up in Portland, Maine. I wanted to write in with some tips on starting a campfire when you found yourself stranded in the middle of the woods. Now, let's assume you've gotten yourself in a pickle. You found yourself out in the woods without the proper survival gear, and you're going to need to camp for the night. You've got no lighter, no matches. Should have thought ahead, right? Okay, so what you want to do is acquire the following objects. One, a car battery. Two, cell phone battery. And finally, three, an old dumb book. The genre shouldn't matter too much, but the older the better. I like a good history book because, boy, it's only a matter of time until that book is just that. History. First, you'll want to disassemble your phone and get the battery in there. You'll need to be sure you brought the right tools along, many of which are proprietary and will need to be purchased ahead of time from your phone's manufacturer. Now, this will take quite a while, so be sure to start this process early enough in the day. Once you've got that, then go out there and forage that forest like an old-fashioned gatherer. Once all the devices have been collected, what you're going to want to do is go ahead and get out your matches. You'll use those soon. 
Okay. First, you're going to want to use the car battery as a makeshift nature table to set your old stupid book on. After that, and here's the fun part: rip her up. And he's he's capitalized. Rip her up. Tear those pages out like the hearts of so many teenaged lovers. Now you might be wondering what you'll be doing with a cell phone battery, right? Well, don't cease wondering now. Just forget about it. You're not going to need it, so you may as well just get it out of your head right now. The sooner you let go of that grand mystery, the sooner you can get on with building this fire. It's getting dark, and that half a cheesy double beef burrito isn't going to reheat itself. Okay, now what you're going to want to do is take your matchbook and set them book pages alight. Soon you'll notice a fire will appear, and as a bonus, once your book pages sizzle out, you'll find that that nature table will take on the burden, and you'll have warmth for hours. Now just sit back, take a deep breath, get them whistling lips wetted, and bask in the glory of living off of naught but God's creation. Eugene. Okay. Well. Thank you, Eugene. I'm sure we'll all look forward to more woodsman wisdom from you in the future. Next up on Out of All Doors, we have Squall takes the bait with uh, fishing expert Squall. Squall, how are you? I'm not a fishing expert. I'm a fishing adept. Okay, well, you're here as a fishing expert, so we really appreciate the fact that you are a fishing expert. Also on the line, we have a, a special guest, a friend of mine, a hiking partner of mine, and a man who also kind of enjoys fishing when he gets a chance. Uh, Matt Martin, Matt, how are you? Hey, I'm doing pretty good. I uh, yeah, I mean, you know, fishing, fishing is all right. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's kind of Kind of cool activity, I guess. Sometimes, you know, I'm not, I'm not an expert, but yeah, it's, it's okay. Now, Squall, as a fishing expert, this must kind of rub you the wrong way. What would you say to Matt to convince him to commit himself more to fishing, like you do? You can give a man a fish; he'll eat for a day. You can teach the man teach a man a fish; he'll eat for a lifetime. Right, that's what I mean. I want you to teach me how to fish, and that kind of know the basics. You know, reel, reel in the line, and you know, try to find the good areas where the water depth and temperature is all good in the school of the fish. But that's what I'm trying to learn here. You know, I don't, I don't know too much, and uh, I feel fortunate to have the expert here. So, kind of, you know, teach me how to fish, as it were. All right, so Squall, what he's asking you is, how does he take that next step? from someone who just enjoys fishing on occasion when he gets the chance to becoming a fishing expert like you are. Uh, what rod should I use? Is there a brand of rod that, that's really, you know, really good or really trustworthy? Well, no, a lot of fishing equipment's pretty much the same. Surely the more expensive the rod and reel, the better, yeah, right? Like, what would you recommend? Oh, I don't. Given all these, you know what I do know though? I know cycling. 
sickle. We're not talking cycling, we're talking fishing. I was brought here to learn about fishing. Yeah, well, uh, you know, Adam, Adam told me that you're the expert here, but it really seems like you don't know anything. No, no, okay, Matt. <laughs> Matt. Why do I care about it? Matt, now, he is the expert. Fishing. Squall, you're making me look bad because I told him that you were the fishing expert and that he was supposed to learn from you, and you're not getting it. Oh, you're making yourself look bad. Are you laughing well, because of how ridiculous this is? No, Squall, you're making me look bad because I told I told Matt that you were an expert and that you would be able to convince him and help him take that next step, and you're suggesting fishing methods that would seem primitive to Cro-Magnon man. Okay, but we we I mean, we just we discussed off air how we were not going to discuss cycling again. But I noticed that you snuck that in again, again. That's right, because I'm, if there's anything I'm an expert at, it's cycling. I don't, I don't even think your fishing is apt. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm no fishing. You claim I'm to be this big expert. You claim to be this big I'm fishing not. expert. And no, Adam claimed that I was. I am not. I deny that claim. I think I know more about fishing than you do. Squall, you're good. Then you can be the fishing expert. F*** you. I, he invited me on here. He said, yeah, we can talk about fishing. I got this fishing expert. I'm like, okay, well, I'm, the fishing's all right. I guess I can learn about fishing. I'm not against that. But I expect you to learn something. And I mean, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm actually losing information here. What's the point of me calling the segment Squall Takes the Bait? Which is an obvious reference to the fact that you're a fishing expert. If you're just going to come on here and insist that you're not a fishing expert, you're going to make a mockery of the fine sport of fishing, and you're going to bring up cycling at every opportunity. Because Squall Takes the Bait is a misnomer. You're using it as a trap for me to make me look like an idiot. And instead, I'm making you look like f***ing idiots, and it's fun. Well, but, I mean, you haven't said anything about fishing. That's the problem. I mean, you're the fishing expert. It's an outdoor segment, outdoor show. It's all about the outdoors. Fishing, obviously, being one of the main activities that you do in outdoors, whether you do it in a boat or fly fishing, anything like this. And I mean, you just know nothing about fishing. I cycle for you to purport to be this great fishing expert. And you're still I don't. talking about biking. The fishing and biking have nothing in common. Like, we try what are you doing? You don't, you don't know anything. You're not an expert. No, Matt. No, I'm not. Matt, he I never claimed to be. No, okay, listen. He is an expert, but Squall, on our previous conversations, you know, prior to technical difficulties, you and I had some fertile ground discussing ice fishing. Ice fishing is really your area of expertise. So why don't you tell Matt? Matt, you have you've hardly done any ice fishing. If have you ever done any ice fishing, Matt? No, no, no. I've, I've everything to learn there. Right, Squall, and that seems to be your special area of expertise. So, Matt, why don't you ask him some questions about ice fishing or Squall? You can just relay some of the information that you've relayed to me previously. I would like wouldn't if you're drilling the hole in the ice. I mean, I guess I'm going to say, you know, how big do you make the hole? That's a, uh, that's, that's a very interesting question. And I believe it's also a trap because I'm going to say, well, you drill a one-foot hole, and then you're going to come back with, well, why don't I drill a four-foot hole? Why? Because your ice shack shouldn't be bigger than four feet. Uh, but, I mean, if you drill a hole, you're going to fall in. You're going to fall in the water. It, if you that's right. Hole, you can at least stand on either side of it. You can't stand on either side of a four-foot hole unless you're doing the splits. Exactly. 
All right, so, uh, I mean, Squall, it sounds like you have a, a bit of an ally here in Matt. Matt agrees with you that the one-foot circumference is right. You and I had a disagreement about that. I said, what if you catch a fish that is one foot and a half in circumference itself, then you won't be able to get it through the one-foot circumference hole. But it sounds like Matt agrees with you that a four-foot hole is too wide, you'll fall in. So I stand corrected. I well, actually, d- I mean, if there are a lot of big fish out there. I do know that for a fact. I mean, there are a lot of big fish that you can catch, um, especially in the winter when they really fatten up. Um, yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, in that situation, a one-foot hole wouldn't be, wouldn't be big enough. Yeah, but like you would kind of catch that big of a fish in the winter to begin with. What do you mean? Of course you would. You want you want more food. It's colder. You want to you know cook more food, have more available to you. Of course, the fish are better in winter. Everybody knows that. So why would no, you want to take six? False. Fish are not fatter during the winter. They're skinnier because there's less food available. No, they're just hibernating down there. It's the perfect time to fish. I mean, I get yeah. any way the ice fishermen do it. They go out there because there's the, that's when the really big fish come out. The fish no. can't get in the, in the summer when the fish are lean. You know, they're they're swimming around more. They're working off all that weight. Squall, also, I thought that fish deliberately got fat for the winter in order to stay warmer. They have, like, the extra layers of blubber because the, the water's so cold. Right. right. That's, called, that's either a walrus or a bear. You are wrong. But, I mean, you can't catch those fishing, can you? You can catch a walrus. You can catch a bear while you're fishing. Well, how are you going to pull a walrus through a hole that's a foot in circumference? It, it, it would have to be a really small walrus. Yeah, and at that at that point, what's the point of even catching a walrus? I'd rather just have a fish. Because they have a lot of blubber. A walrus that's only a foot in circumference does not have a lot of blubber. It has more blubber than you think. But not as much as I'd like. I'd like a lot of blubber on there. Exactly. Just like you like your women, right? Oh! <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's personal. And that's, well, actually, I don't think that pertains to the, the matter of hand. But, I mean... I don't know. It just doesn't seem like you're... I don't know why you'd advocate catching walrus in the first place and why, after having advocated that, you'd suggest trying to pull it through this tiny little opening instead of, you know, actually making the opening wide enough for the walrus. If I'm going walrus fishing, I'm going to cut a four-foot hole because I want a big walrus. Why limit myself? Well, first of all, walrus are a fish. Walrus are mammals. So you be mammal fishing... <laughs> I mean, you're the expert. Is that what it's called? I like that. I like that term. That term point. Although I wouldn't call you an expert in mammaling. You may be an expert in fishing. The jury's still out on that, but I, I would not say you're an expert on mammaling. Um, but I mean, whether a walrus is a fish or a mammal, regardless, it's still your method of catching is. I, I don't know. I don't know that I'd recommend. I don't know that I'd share this information. If someone asked me, hey, how do I catch a walrus? You know, it'd be this kind of neat little serendipity, this coincidence. Oh, I just recently talked to a fishing expert who was talking about catching walrus. I don't even know that I'd share that tip because it seems so wrong. Well, then don't. That's your choice. All right, let's move on from uh, from, uh, hole width. And I just want to... 
All right, so this came up briefly, both previous failed attempts to, to record this segment, uh, but I would just I just kind of want to hear what Matt has to say about it. Now, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Squall, but I believe you said that as relates to ice fishing, it's okay if the ice is one foot thick to load your family into a car and drive the car on the ice. No, I did not say that. You're putting words in my mouth. I said I don't want to put words in your mouth, so you you tell me yeah, what well, you said. Well, I'm okay, sorry. What I said was it's okay to drive on the ice with a car when the ice is a foot thick in total. How, how is that different than what I just said? Because I didn't say put your family in the car. Be irresponsible about, responsible about it. Well, if it's okay for me to do, why is it not okay for me to take my family too? Because of the added weight in the car? How big do you think my yeah, family? It's not recommended. How fat do you think my family is? Very fast. Jeez, Paul. Oh, oh, so, that's applicable to the current conversation. But I mean, I was wondering that too. Like, how do you get out onto the ice? I see these guys out in the middle of the ice. I wonder how they get out there. Do they drive some giant trucks with their family out on this yeah. ice? On there, apparently they do. Apparently they just drive. No, they don't. They, don't they walk. And, you know, they walk. Learn how to learn how to ice fish. They walk. We're trying to learn how to ice fish, but you're just being belligerent. You say they no, walk. I'm being belligerent because you're being wrong. <sighs> All right, well, this has been Squall Takes the Bait on Out of All Doors, and uh, hopefully Squall will be able to join us again uh, next time, and uh, uh, maybe Matt, too. So, Squall, do you want to sign off? Squall signing off, and make sure you listen and subscribe to all his other ridiculous podcasts. All right, hey, Squall, will you do that again? I'm going to do it, and you just say, this is fishing expert Squall signing off. This is Squall signing off, and make sure you listen and subscribe to all his other ridiculous podcasts. No, I want you to describe yourself as a fishing expert, just to kind of reiterate and that. I won't do it. I refuse. Well, the whole thing will be lost, and then the podcast will get aired. Yep. Well, that's, that's your own fault. Hey, Squall, just, uh, just, just for no reason here, just be quiet for a second, and then clearly say the words fishing expert, and then be quiet again for a second. Okay? Ready? Go. All right, perfect. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to edit that out, and I'm going to put it in front of your name. So when you say this is, and then I'm going to edit in fishing expert squall, and it'll be in your voice, so it'll sound like you called yourself a fishing expert. So that'll be perfect. Thanks. All right, so Matt, you want to sign off? Yeah, I sure do. Yeah, this is it. And, uh, hey, squall, please, this is my sign-off. Um, I mean, I, don't, I can't say I really learned a lot today, but um, I don't know, maybe... Maybe uh, something will will come by later, but yeah, generally, um, you know, enjoyable kind of kind of like fishing, I guess. You know, it's uh, it's it's okay. It doesn't hurt. This is fishing expert Paul signing off, and make sure you listen and subscribe to all his other ridiculous podcasts. Lie down if you can. If you can't lie down. Sit. If you can't sit, lean on something. Close your eyes. Relax. Breathe deeply and evenly. Allow your mind to stretch out far beyond the borders of your skull. Allow your mind to see vividly 
in detail, in full color. You were walking through a meadow. You were wearing your favorite clothes, including your favorite glasses and your favorite ankle brace. The sun is either rising or setting. You can't tell which, since you don't know which direction you're facing. But you check your favorite watch and see that it's 8.30 in the evening. You pause to deliberate, thoughtfully considering this new information. After several minutes, you say, It must be sunset, and you continue on your way. The grass in the meadow is tall, reaching past your bare knees. Your knees are bare because your favorite pants have huge holes in them. The holes are all over, really, but especially at the knees. These are the pants you put on every morning during the war. But don't think about wars, please. Think about a green meadow at sunset in the early summer. And you're walking through it. Your stride slow but confident. You savor every second, but you're not conscious of how those seconds are slipping ceaselessly into the past, never to be savored again. That's the last thing you're focusing on right now. You smell flowers, but you don't see them. Does that mean they aren't there? I suppose that depends on how much you trust your nose. I can't tell you how to visualize trusting your nose. This is one of those rare decisions you get to make during this visualization exercise. You walk up a gentle incline, and when you crest the hill, there on the other side are some blue and yellow flowers. Your nose was right this whole time. If you were one of those people who decided not to trust your nose, maybe next time you will. Maybe next time you're tempted to not trust your nose, you'll remember the shame and humiliation of this moment. You put your hands on your hips and, standing on top of the hill, feeling the wind ruffling your favorite wig, you survey the flowers spread out before you. It's not really in the spirit of this exercise to count them, but you do. There are literally 16 of them, so at least it doesn't take you too long to count them. You count them again just to be certain, which is even less in the spirit of this exercise. This time you count 17 flowers, which prompts you to count them for a third time. This time you count 11. You decide to move on. Rather than walk down the hill and through the flowers, you turn to your right and walk along the ridge of the hill. The sky, which is above you, is red, yellow, and orange in unequal proportions. If the sun had a face, its expression as it sinks toward the horizon would be drowsy but still retaining a spark of mischief. But the sun has no face. We'll save that kind of thing for a more outlandish visualization exercise. This visualization exercise is still rooted more or less in reality. But that doesn't mean it can't be fun. Look, there, running toward you. It's a young man carrying a folding card table under one arm and the game Connect Four under his other arm. The fact that he can run so nimbly while carrying these items is, admittedly, slightly outlandish, but come on, it's not on the same level as the sun having a face capable of complex and subtle expressions. The young man stops a few yards away from you and begins to set up the card table, carefully laying Connect Four in the grass by his feet. You ignore the young man with the card table and Connect Four, veering a few feet out of your way to avoid him. He's only here to prove that fun is possible in this world, but we're not going to spend time visualizing a game of Connect Four, for heaven's sake. The young man watches you forlornly as you walk away along the ridge. Who is that person whose pants are more whole than pants? He whispers to himself, but a traitorous breeze carries his words to your ears, and by that I mean that you hear what he said about your pants and about how they're more whole than pants. But you aren't offended. You aren't insulted. You aren't made self-conscious. You aren't embarrassed. You don't feel compelled to obtain less revealing pants. You don't even turn around so the young man can see how little you're affected by his judgmental remark. 
Soon the ridge begins to angle down toward a stand of tall trees surrounding a dark pool of water. You walk in among the trees and up to the edge of the pool. It's dark among the trees, their trunks, branches, and leaves blocking the fading sunlight through sheer opacity. Ha ha, sheer opacity could be an oxymoron if you go with the primary definition of sheer on dictionary.com as opposed to the third definition, which is how I meant it. A mosquito lands on your neck and sucks out a small amount of your blood. But a funny thing happens. The spot where the mosquito bit you becomes the least itchy spot on your entire body. Which isn't to say that the rest of your body is itchy. Not at all. It's just that the spot where the mosquito bit you is particularly not itchy. Some outlandish things do happen in this visualization exercise. There are several lily pads on the surface of the pool. On one of those lily pads, it's a fat frog, although he isn't really fat for a frog. His fatness is just a typical characteristic of his frogness. The frog regards you, and you regard him. You wonder why the frog is there. Is that frog actually some guy somewhere else in the world listening to a visualization exercise wherein he is being told to visualize himself as a frog on a lily pad looking at a person in horrendously tattered pants of an indeterminate material? You ponder this, a pained expression on your face. Don't hurt yourself, haha. <laughs> you take off your favorite shoes, favorite socks, and favorite ankle brace, and you roll your favorite pants up above your knees and you sit down at the edge of the pool. You lower your legs into the cool water. Your feet don't touch bottom. They just dangle, your heels bumping against the slick rock wall of the pool. But you don't worry about something biting your feet. You don't worry about something grabbing your ankle. You don't worry about possible contaminants in the water coming into contact with your leg's skin. You don't worry about the pool of water flash freezing around your legs so that you're stuck there until a thaw, which who knows when that will be. There are so many things you don't worry about. We don't have time to list all of them. I'm not saying you're entirely without worry. I'm just saying you're not worrying more than you're worrying, and that ain't bad. Now, listener, it's time for you to come back to the real world. It's time to draw your consciousness back within the confines of your skull, to open your eyes and use them for seeing. It's time to sit up, stand up, and go about your day. But as you do, listener, let the peace of being out of all doors go with you, even when you're inside of one or more doors. listening to the first episode of Out of All Doors. I'm Adam Drenton. I would like to thank Matt Martin, Andy Poppenfuss, J.J. Evans, and Aaron Eikenberry for their contributions, written, audible, and technical. And thanks to Casey By for making all the music used in the show. And thanks to Squall for doing what he did. If you'd like to get in touch for any reason, you can send emails to the show at outofalldoors at gmail.com or me personally at adamdren at gmail.com. You can also call or text me at 574-518-1983. I'd love to hear from you. And be sure to check out my website, hugepop.com, where you can find links to my other projects, including Bedtime Stories, One Man's World, and the music I make as The Mispronouncer. Bedtime Stories and One Man's World are also on iTunes if you search for them under podcasts, and a Bedtime Stories app is also available for all smart-style phones. We'll be back eventually with Episode 2 of Out of All Doors.